Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 261, The Trouble with Mary. This week, folks, you shall hear about two things. After a few preambles, the first of our ambles proper is what I consider to be the low point in Cranmer's career. Once we have shed tears for the great man, I'll move discreetly on to leave him thinking about what he's done. And in the second amble, talk about how Mary responded to the Edwardian regime. You can expect flexibility, tact and political skill in great absence, but defiance and courage in abundance. So, in 1549, Dudley had proved himself the master of the political game. First, very quickly, I had a question that made it clear that I had not been clear. Due to that extraordinarily annoying habit of referring to our political leaders by their title, when I talk about John Dudley, I'm referring to the Earl of Warwick, who will also then acquire the title of the Duke of Northumberland in the future. I realise I don't help because I'm a bit inconsistent in my nomenclature. This week I seem to call him John Dudley all the time, when I should probably be calling him Warwick. Sorry, and all. And in fact, that would be a feature of Dudley's talents. He was a much more impressive politician than was Somerset. And in a way, to the political nation, he was much safer. So not for Dudley the rabble-rousing, and frankly, slightly embarrassing desire to negotiate with the poor. Dudley was much more consensual, He followed the principle that if you need to present a proposal to the council, make darn sure that you know exactly what the outcome will be before you take it there. Dudley was good at that. Behind the scenes, where Somerset would impose or bypass, Dudley would consult, flatter, stroke. Might sound a little bit gross, but a politician's job, after all, is to get things done. However, we should not mistake consensual and political for friendly. Dudley seems to have had a parallel talent for getting up people's noses, He was liable to hector and bully, table thump. It would not help him when there were rising balloons around. First of all, Dudley had to pay the price for his success and quickly he rewarded the people who'd backed him. So we now have a new Earl of Wiltshire, hooray! Russell, who'd been so important to Dudley's success, became Earl of Bedford and so on. One of the men who benefited was Henry Grey, Marcus of Dorset, father of Jane. At the end of November, he was appointed to the Royal Council to help tip the balance Dudley's way. He was one of the six lords responsible personally for Edward's upkeep, which meant that Henry moved the family from Bradgate in Leicestershire down to good old London town in February 1550. When there had been all that stuff about Thomas Seymour and Princess Elizabeth, Seymour had been forced to work very hard to persuade Henry and Francis Grey to keep their daughter in his charge. And when he finally fell they resolved not to repeat that error. 
and so Jane had been taken back into the family home, and therefore, when Henry took up his responsibilities at court, Jane began to be seen much more at court as well. Jane wouldn't have been there constantly. She's still back and forth a bit from Bradgate and London, and in July or August 1550, she was back at Bradgate when she was visited by a scholar of international renown, one Roger Ascham. And when he arrived, she was discovered reading Plato, which is impressive. I've managed to avoid that piece of social embarrassment so far. Ascham's visit is one we'll return to at some future point. So, we now have a new hand on the tiller of state, our John Dudley. The Dudley family, after suffering the disgrace and the execution of Edmund Dudley, were finally back in town, and back in no uncertain manner. I think it would be hard to underestimate just how important this was to John Dudley. The rehabilitation of his family name after the humiliation of his father, who had, after all, essentially been executed for the sins of his master, Henry VII, was very important to him. For those great families, lineage was part of their very fabric. There were some formalities to go through. There were no recent precedents for a non-royal regent, for example. I'm thinking, not since William the Marshal in 1217? but correct me if I'm wrong. So, how would this work? The solution was to make him Lord Great Master of the Chamber, which gave him complete access to the King, but also made him Lord President of the Council, which gave him control of appointees to the Council and all of that, so he had all the political strings in his hands. And over the next few months, he sacked Conservatives and appointed Evangelicals to the Council, so much so that the Imperial Ambassador gloomily reported he is absolute master here, and the lords of the council are under his orders. That's pretty awful. I just decided that Rowena has been asking for accents. You know, maybe now I ought to give them. So, just as a one-off. Somerset. Now, Somerset, rather remarkably, was not executed. Though, you know, watch this space. There were plenty around to plead his case, including, of course, his good servant, William Cecil, who also enlisted the help of the Duchess of Suffolk. 2,000 folk were reported to be waiting outside the tower, hoping for his release. Rather more remarkably, Somerset actually made a full political comeback. By May 1550, he was back at court and he was back on the council. Well, good golly, Miss Molly. The king doesn't seem to have turned a hair at the change of management and he would establish a good relationship with Dudley. In fact, the relationship would develop almost as though Edward came to regard Dudley as his father. Certainly, Dudley never forgot that through the king, minor though he might be, ultimately came all power. In the short term, Dudley made some changes quite quickly, increasing the security, for example, led by a man called John Gates. Five people at least were in attendance at any one time on the king, which must have been horrendously tiresome. No shed time at all. More positively for Edward, his regime was changed. Much more time learning how to run at the ring or the quintern or to hunt, which he thoroughly loved by all accounts, to the point of making him late for his lessons. Dudley allowed more freedom into his young charge's life, more balance. He acquired new companions, among them one Francois de Vendôme, who made a useful counterpoint to all that books and learning stuff. Takes him away from his books and his master's lessons, saying to him, What need of your majesty of so many books? and he leads him away to play. However, do not take that to mean that Edward was coming off the educational boil. As Del Boy would tell him, au contraire, mon brave, au contraire. He had a new tutor, one Anthony Cook, who the more eagle-eared among you will recognise as William Cecil's father-in-law, father of Mildred. Yet more gloomily, the imperial ambassador reported, 
In court, there was no bishop, no man of learning so ready to argue in support of the new doctrine as the king. Edward was an avid consumer of sermons, as it happens, and he wrote notes about them in a personal book which he held, which sadly has not survived, unlike his journal. And in fact, he extended the number of sermons so that they would now be weekly. The reformers were, of course, over the moon. Believe me, you have never seen in the world for these 3,000 years so much erudition united with piety and sweetness of disposition. Should he live and grow up with these virtues, he will be a terror to all sovereigns of the earth. The quote is interesting because it also points to the internationalism of England's reformers. We tend to think about the English Reformation in isolation, and you really can't. Certainly, Cranmer and the reformers did no such thing. They were part of an international movement. After the disaster of the Catholic Emperor's victory over the Lutheran princes at Mulberg, reformers had flooded into England for safety. The well-known reformer Martin Bucer was in close attendance on Cranmer, for example. In 1552, John Knox would come to England. And although Cranmer may have been clear about what he wanted and that he would get there slowly to bring the Conservatives with him, he was under constant pressure from the more radical wing of his reformers. This pressure from the radicals was nothing new. But although the Edwardian period sees a significant shift towards the more radical, taking the nation far further than Henry VIII would have contemplated, it still didn't go far enough for many. Cranmer had many attractive aspects to his character, as I have tried to show over the last few weeks and months. But he was also a man of steely resolve when challenged, and he could be very harsh in reinforcing discipline in his new church. Now this was as much about restraining radicals as it was about convincing conservatives. One typical incident was a furious argument with John Hooper about church vestments. The Edwardian church had wanted to reduce the distance between church and people. It wanted to exterminate the rather gorgeous finery of their clothes, so it made the clothes of the bishop and clergy in general much more simple but they still had different clothes. Now, radicals like Hooper were furious at what they considered to be just the same worldly bauble stuff of the old church in disguise. And as it happens, Hooper was in the process of being made a bishop and he refused to be consecrated. I could go on for hours about what is called the vestments crisis, but it's really esoteric to the modern ear. The long and short is that all sorts of workarounds and compromises were considered and suggested and discussed. But in the end, Cranmer chucked Hooper into the fleet until he gave in. So Cranmer could be tough. And it is in this context that we should come to the lowest point in Cranmer's story, the affairs of Joan Butcher and George Van Paris. There is an anti-Cranmer club in the world, amazing as it may sound, and in evidence to his imperfections, folks have pointed to the oath Cranmer swore to the Pope when he was made Archbishop of Canterbury. They pointed at Mrs Cranmer, a Mrs before clerical marriage was allowed. They pointed to his survival as the Archbishop of Canterbury through Henry's years as evidence of a lack of consistent principle of ducking and of weaving. Digibdomus is due. Some of these, such as enforcing the six articles, for example, had caused he himself to beat his breast. But... They're all explicable by two things. Firstly, Cranmer's absolutely consistent and demonstrable belief in the royal supremacy. He might not agree with the king, but he would defend to the death the king's right to make the decision. And there is a parallel in his great Catholic antithesis and indeed nemesis, Reginald Poole. Reginald himself fervently agreed and advocated Luther's doctrine of justification by faith alone, 
but he accepted the decision of the Pope and the Council of Trent to reject it. Secondly, it's explained by Cranmer's evolving set of personal doctrinal views, and in time of such change, such new ideas and upheaval, it is surely unsurprising and acceptable that such a thing would take time. I would much rather the thoughtful evolution of ideas. So, all well and good, I personally believe Cranmer's reputation to be safe, but it's a genuinely harsher side of his character that Joan Butcher met in 1550. Joan Butcher and Cranmer had met before. In the 1540s, Cranmer had actually released her from prison for denying the sacrament of the altar. This time, though, Joan denied that Christ was born of the Virgin Mary, which is a pretty central doctrine, it must be said. Frenzied efforts were made to get her to change her mind. No torture or anything like that, nothing like Anne Askew. But, like Anne, the efforts failed, and Cranmer decided that she should burn. Joan, however could not be burned without Edward's seal, and to his great credit, Edward was not willing to give his seal for such a thing. His teacher, John Cheek, was at his wit's end in trying to persuade him, and so Cranmer himself came to talk him round. According to the accounts of John Fox, the 13-year-old Edward was obdurate. What, my lord? Will you have me send her quick to the devil in her error? In the end, Edward gave way to pressure, but he looked at Cranmer when he did so, and he made it clear that he would lay all the charge thereof upon Cranmer before God. On the 2nd of May, 1550 then, Joan burned, defiant to the end, accusing her persecutors of lying. Another Protestant radical would be burned the following year, George Van Paris, excommunicated from the Dutch Strangers' Church. Joan's death had consequences near and far in the short term, it signalled a drawing in of the warmer weather. Though we're still just talking about two burnings in six years, I appreciate one burning is too many, but by comparison with his father and sister and the vast majority of Europe, Edward's record was still good. But Somerset's much vaunted repeal of the heresy laws and his refusal to prosecute the censorship laws was breached. Now, censorship had always been something of a debate among the Edwardian state and indeed among the Tudor world. The traditional view was furiously expressed by Stephen Gardner. For him, Protestantism was the religion of liberty. Ooh, goody we think. So that's a good thing, right? Not so for Stephen Gardner. Liberty was a corrosive solvent that would dissolve the social fabric like acid. Once you allowed damage to the fabric of reverence and obedience, the whole social order would go with it. So Gardner wrote furiously that the social order was in danger of being turned upside down. It were idolatry for the servant to make courtesy to his master, wherein he should bow the knee, or the goodman to kiss his wife. But to kneel and kiss his superior were by him foul and filthy abomination. Cranmer took an opposite view. He firmly believed that when the word of God was revealed in the Bible, the truth would be self-evident to all. And so censorship could not harm, and the more communication, the more truth would be among the people. The experience, of course, was different. A mass of pamphlets and debates appeared, a flood of publications from both radicals and Catholics, as well as evangelicals. In 1551, both Dudley and Cranmer had had enough of this chaos, and in 1551, an ordinance was published seizing materials. Now, in fact, the Edwardian state was pretty feeble at enforcing the censorship laws, but the intention to allow full debate had gone. 
the Edwardian church was yielding to discord in much the same way as had the Henrician. Another impact of Joan's burning was to hand a big stick to future Catholic apologists and enemies of the Elizabethan church who would claim that while it was still true that not one Catholic was executed for heresy during the Edwardian time, two people were executed. While ignoring the presence of pots and black kettles, they crowed that if Cranmer went to the flames, well, that was merely sauce for the goose. In fact, and it was not just Catholics. Our famous martyrologist John Fox was livid with Cranmer for both Joan and George's death. Fox was a big fan of Cranmer, but he deplored any executions for religious reasons. He begged the Protestant scholar John Rogers to intercede with Cranmer and change his mind. John Rogers replied, as many would have done at the time, that Joan's sentence seemed most appropriate to him. Fox stormed at him. Well then, maybe you will find out that on some occasion you yourself will have your hands full of this same gentle burning. This would turn out to be tragically prophetic. John Rogers would be the first person to be burned under Queen Mary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Which links us neatly to Mary, actually. Mary was not pleased with the change of management from Somerset to Dudders. When she heard the news, she described Dudley as The most unstable man in England. You will see that no good come of this move but that it is a punishment from heaven and maybe only the beginning of our misfortunes. Her disappointment was doubled, of course, because she and the imperial ambassador had confidently expected the conservative Southampton to take control, that's Thomas Rottersley, along with the re-establishment of proper religious practice, the release of Bishops Gardner and Bonner, the return of joy, laughter and chocolate buttons. They're not sure we have chocolate yet, do we? You know. But on the roller coaster ride that was the life of Mary, the car was travelling downwards again. Mary confidently expected that her hard-won liberties would now be crushed. She told the ambassador she was thinking of flight. She's an odd case, Mary, because on the one hand she was genuinely worried about being martyred and indeed wrote to the council, furiously accusing them that this was exactly what they were planning. And yet she then seemed to court that very thing by ostentatiously throwing open her doors to all and sundry, come and celebrate mass round her place, bring a friend, just don't bring a bottle. If you've heard my shedcast on religious toleration, you will know that one of the routes to toleration for Catholics in Protestant countries would be the hidden in plain sight approach. Everyone knew a mass was going on, but nobody said anything. Such an approach was beyond Mary's power of discretion and subtlety, which were anyway a rather undeveloped skill in her. The smell of burning martyr would hang around Mary in more than one way. So in April... Mary took up residence near Malden in Essex, which is, you might notice, near the sea. Mary was stressed out not just about her religious freedom, but also marriage, because the marriage was being proposed between her and the Lutheran Marcus of Brandenburg. Mary was insisting she'd do nothing without the Emperor's advice. Mary's relationship with the Emperor is remarkable. I mean, he's family, OK, to a degree, I realise. But he represents a foreign power. 
Charles's plan at this point appears to have been to marry Mary to his son Philip and then press Philip and Mary's claim to the English throne on the basis of Edward's illegitimacy. So you know, in this case, fish are indeed food. Charles is not our friend. Still, I would also feel more than a bit stressed out about having to marry somebody I didn't know, miles away, who had no love of cricket, so I can empathise. Mary, without doubt, felt very, very isolated, very alone and very vulnerable. In July 1550, then, we have a bit of theatre, and I have persuaded Joan of Arc to come back and play Mary with me for a couple of scenes. For honesty's sake, I should say that the report on which our playlet is based only actually writes down Mary's words, not the people she's talking to. So, Mary's words are authentic, but for the others, we've just, you know, made them up. Clearly, I'm not Bennett, so don't get excited. Here's our first scene, then. We are at Wooden Walter, the princess's residence near Malden in Essex. The conversation includes Mary and the Imperial Ambassador, van der Delft. It also includes one blooper I just couldn't resist leaving in. Smoke rises from the houses of Malden. The hour grows late and the Ambassador rides to Wooden Walter seeking counsel. Ma, madam, I come to your call like marmalade to toast, like goals to Derby County. You say you wish to fly the country, but surely... We must wait to see what the council will do. They are wicked and willy in their actions. No, they're not. They're wicked and wily in their actions. Oh. Well, same difference. Okay. <laughs> there you go, there you go. You guys are way too willy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they are wicked and wily in their actions, and particularly malevolent towards me. I must not wait until the blow falls. But, my lady, what happens if Edward dies? While you have flown, a religion would be set aside without any hope of mending it. If my brother were to die, I should be far better out of the kingdom, because as soon as he were dead, before the people knew it, they would dispatch me too. My lady, my master, the emperor, he advises you, you must temporise. Even if they forbid you the mass, you must do what they say, until we have our chance. I fear I may tarry too long. And if the council were possessed of the same foresight that the late king, my father, had, I should be too late now even to save myself. I am quite resolved to withdraw elsewhere, and I hope the Emperor's Majesty and my friends will not fail me. They will order me to withdraw 30 miles from any navigable river or seaport and will deprive me of my confidential servants, and having reduced me to the utmost destitution, they will deal with me as they please. But I will rather suffer death than stain my conscience, I beg you to help me with your advice, so that I may not be taken unawares. They are about to overthrow all the altars. My lady, my master the emperor, he will be horrified at your distress. If it must be as you say, the emperor will do as you say. I am like a little ignorant girl, and I care neither for my goods nor for the world, but only for God's service and my conscience. I know not what to say, but if there is peril in going and peril in staying, I must choose the lesser of two evils. What gives me pain is the thought of leaving my household, which, though small, is composed of good Christians who may, in my absence, become lost sheep and even follow these new opinions. Melody, I shall go now, do nothing, until we return. Okay. Now, if I was really clever, obviously, I'd make the whole thing into a play. But, you know, I'm not. So... Mary did indeed decide that she would run. The imperial ambassador was due to be replaced by a new gentleman from the Low Countries, one Jean Shiver. 
whose unpronounceable name I can handle only due to MJ's help. Thank you, MJ. This was a good thing, that there's a new guy, I mean, since it allowed the previous guy to cook up an absolutely absurd plan and then leave it as a small, tightly bound pile of poo for the guy who took his job. Here you go. Have fun with this one. I'm off. See ya, Ethiopia. The idea was that two Imperial warships would float off the Essex coast, claiming to be looking for pirates. Shiver would send one of his agents under the cover of darkness and Mary would hop on a boat brought for the purpose, make her way down to the river, out to the Imperial boats and to freedom. The Imperial court was less than enthusiastic about the idea. I mean, where did that leave their best interests? As far as Charles was concerned, he'd rather have Mary right where she was, giving him some excellent leverage with the English government, carte blanche to intervene in local politics and all that. But Mary was frantic, and Mary was determined to go. So, it's the 2nd of July, 1550. It's very early in the morning. Two Imperial warships lie off the coast. Imperial agent Jean Dubois has arrived. He sends a message ashore and travels inland to Harwich, pretending to be a merchant selling corn. And there he will meet with Rochester, Queen's loyal and very competent controller, and pretend to sell him some corn. Blimey, Charlie, this really is the stuff of Jimmy Bond movies. There'll be a pool of sharks dressed in bikinis soon. But, ladies and gentlemen, there is nobody there when Dubois arrives. Furiously, Dubois pens a letter to Rochester. I will sell my corn at once and will be ready tonight. Please, let me know your intentions. There would be danger were there to be many women. Oddly, Rochester wasn't keen. But eventually, word finally arrived at one o'clock in the morning that Mary was green, that Operation Hop, it was a go. Dubois had told his corn, and in the wee small hours, desperate to get a move on so as not to miss the tide, he charged over to Mary's house. When he arrived, everything was in chaos. He was shown to her room, and there was Mary having clothes and things stuffed into big sacks designed to carry the hop harvest. Here's another little exchange. I am Dubois, the imperial agent. Mary's words are as reported, some in the original, others sometimes paraphrased just to keep it short. I have your letter here, but I am yet ill-prepared, as it seems you wish it to be for tonight. Any time for your majesty pleases, but I have written and spoken to your controller the reason for which prolonged delay appears to me to be dangerous. Once you have crossed the water, you shall want for nothing. Your effects do not matter. The great thing is to conduct your person in safety. I cannot be ready until the day after next, Friday, and I shall then be ready to leave at four o'clock in the morning. Some men in the village have been to see the ship. They're intending to send men to hold you and your ships until they know your business. What should we do? What is to become of me? At any point I expect to see the beacon fires, warning of enemies. What is to become of me? It's frankly third-rate acting, isn't it? Sorry about that. The long and short, ladies and gentlemen, is that unfortunately this is a gag without a punchline because Mary did not run. It's an interesting little scene, though, from which I should like to draw a few things. Mary is in a right old panic, almost coming apart at the seams. Her naivety is really quite remarkable in the story, and it's one that she carries into many situations, and indeed into her reign in places. It's probably not surprising, given her history, that Mary could lack self-confidence, 
and would very often look for reassurance from outside. She constantly appeals to the imperial ambassador and to the emperor. And then Rochester, Mary's controller, strongly suspected that the council was very well informed about Mary's comings and goings. He had his suspicions. And he was right to be suspicious. Mary's household turned out to have a spy in it. Because spookily, next thing, a troop of horses suddenly arrived from the council, claiming to be there to prevent Mary from going away. Mary denied everything, even denying the whole thing to the new ambassador, Shiver. So, this would mean that Dudley knew about this event, and probably other members of the council knew as well. That might just possibly, perhaps, be significant later. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Well, OK, let me be more obvious about it. This will be significant later. Dudley has a view of Mary as indecisive, a crumbler in the face of a real emergency. I don't know how well it comes out from the story, but Mary was also able to inspire great loyalty from those around her. Mary had made one great submission in her life, to her father, under enormous pressure, when in 1536 she'd bowed to his demands, agreed that her mother's marriage to him had been illegitimate, and in return she'd been accepted back into the royal household. She was clearly determined to make no more submissions. Maybe this combination of courage and determination, naivety and indecisiveness, encouraged that sense of loyalty. It's also likely there was considerable sympathy for the life she'd been forced through. While reconciled to her father, Mary had been clear that she wanted to marry, but was equally aware of the advantage that could be made of her by foreign powers. Mary was therefore convinced she'd never be able to be married, and declared that she would be, while her father lived, only Lady Mary, the most unhappy lady in Christendom. Now that her father was dead and Mary was 34, things didn't seem to be getting any better. Now marriage was being discussed, but as part of Protestant alliances, which of course was far from Mary's convictions. Another small twiddle is the use by the imperial agents of the phrase Your Majesty in connection with Mary. They did this consistently to make the point they considered Mary to be the proper monarch of England. So bear again in mind that whatever the diplomatic situation, the English and King's Council could never discount this relentless and never-ending basic hostility from the Holy Roman Empire, this card held back to be played as they could. The affair was not over. Dudley proceeded cautiously, and rather than target Mary, the council indicted two of Mary's chaplains for saying Mass. But by this stage, the King's own opinion began to be important, because Edward himself was losing patience with his sister's recusancy. On the 1st of December, the council wrote what was practically a sermon to Mary, and stressed that her immunity was a private individual thing. You know, one law for the rich, one for the poor, that sort of thing. Tusky, it was ever thus. And Edward himself wrote to his sister. In our state, it shall miscontent us to permit you, so great a subject, not to keep our laws. Your nearness to us in blood, your greatness in estate, the condition of the time, maketh your fault the greater. I think I know what response I'd get if I wrote to my sister with such a tone, but then I'm not God's anointed, whatever I tell myself. Now, this was a problem for Mary, though, Edward's letter because her defence had always been that the council were a bunch of jumped-up nobodies. Who were they to tell her what to do? And the king was just a young whippersnapper and a shrimp who clearly didn't have an opinion of his own yet, in so many words. And now, here it was, the king in person. We are now in the presence of an irresistible force and an immovable object. In March 1551, she was summoned to court. 
and with a whiff of the martyr, she came, riding through London ostentatiously, ensuring her entire household brandished rosary beads as a profession of their Catholic faith. Edward kicked off the meeting by making it plain that her public attendance at Mass was not to be borne. Sadly, the Crowther players forgot to do anything more from this point, so you'll have to guess from my voice which of these people is Edward and which Mary, and I shall not be silly. My soul is God's. I will not change my faith, nor dissemble my opinions with contrary doings. I do not constrain your faith. You cannot rule as king. You must obey as a subject. Your example may breed too much inconvenience. Friper age and experience will teach your majesty much more yet. You also may have something to learn. None are too old for that. Essentially, Mary flatly declared that her faith was not to be constrained. Edward replied that he gave not one curse of the finest tinker about her faith, only her behaviour. Mary then went in for the patronising you-just-a-shrimp tactic, with Edward playing the Judas Priest, you-don't-have-to-be-old-to-be-wise defence. Classic song too, of course. This is a dispute that runs and runs. Essentially, both Edward and Dudley were prepared to cut Mary some slack if she would just play ball and practice her faith in private as agreed. Cranmer also advised the council that to suffer and wink for a time might be born. The council's strategy continued to be to act to keep her religious practice private and personal. So when she went overboard, they arrested two chaplains to coerce Mary towards reasonableness. Mary alternated between panic and terror and fiery defiance. She was perfectly capable of holding her own in argument, but what she didn't show was cool calculation. There's nothing of the flexible and subtle about Mary. It's all up front. Now, there are times when this is rather magnificent. In a sense, riding into London flashing rosary beads was Mary's way not only of showing her own personal defiance, but offering herself as an example and support to her people. And for that, you have to admire her. At other times, it's just irritating, pointless and laden with a sense of entitled superiority. There's one occasion where she sends the council's messengers packing, hanging out of her window, yelling at their backs, I pray God to send you do well in your souls, for some of you have but weak bodies. Having said that, Dudley could also descend to the petty, refusing to address Mary as princess and insisting on calling her the king's sister only. And it's impossible not to feel some sympathy given Mary's isolation. On occasion, she was capable of playing ball. In June 1552, she would attend court and managed not to shove her faith into everybody's faces. And in return, Edward chose not to raise the subject of religion at all either. Edward seems to have liked his sister, just found her intransigence irritating. On the other hand, having heard one Catholic historian announce that Queen Mary's greatest mistake was not to kill Elizabeth, it's difficult to avoid the conclusion that Edward's greatest mistake was not to kill Mary. That would, after all, have saved England and her people a lot of pain. Not, you understand, that I'm advocating political assassination. Now then, I seem to have concentrated rather more on Jane and Mary than I planned. Got carried away with the escape plot. So sorry. Next time, I suppose we ought to spend more time on high politics and all that sort of thing and move smoothly through Dudley's period as boss. So that is what we shall do. Next time will be the 18th of November and finally Dudley will get to be the bride and put away his bridesmaid's weeds. Meanwhile, our estimable members will be dining on a feast of Scottish history. It's 1390 and the wolf of Badenoch has come to the fair town of Elgin and really, that's not good news for Elgin.
The wolf has been used as an example of the struggle between overmighty subject and centralizing throne. He's also been seen as a symbol of a rapacious, untamable Highlander. In this episode, we'll talk about how the wolf earns that reputation, what his life tells us about late 14th century Scotland, and how, in fact, his life tells us much more about the ability of the Scottish political nation to manage a quite extraordinary political situation. Get this, at one stage, a king set aside in favour of a guardian who was himself incapacitated and subject to the effective rule of the Lieutenant General, the Earl of Fife. And if English history is more your thing, you can watch the arrival of the seafarers of Cornwall and Devon, who will be so much a part of England's story in the 16th century. Just go to thehistoryofengland.co.uk and hit become a member. Thank you then everyone for listening. It's really lovely of you. Thank you very much for those of you who come along and comment on the website or Facebook or rate me on iTunes. Have a good couple of weeks then everyone and Dudley and I will see you on the 18th. <laughs>